In the movie The Words, a struggling young writer named Rory Jansen finds a mysterious manuscript stuffed in an old leather bookstore, book, uh, excuse me, <laughs> briefcase uh, at a uh, thrift store. He takes this manuscript and he types it out word for word, submits it to his publisher, and the publisher loves it. Publishes the book, and it's an instant runaway bestseller. It, it immediately changes this struggling young writer's life, and, and where before he was you know, scrimping and scraping and scrapping, now there's money and press tours and fame and notoriety. Later in the film, an old man confronts Rory and claims to be the true author of the book. The old man says that he wrote this handwritten manuscript after the, the death of his child and his subsequent divorce to try to process his pain in writing, put it in an old briefcase, and lost track of it when it went to the thrift store. Time passes, and Rory, racked with remorse, locates the old man who's working at a greenhouse tending plants. When the two of them are alone in the greenhouse, Rory tells the old man, I want to fix this. There's nothing to fix, the old man says. You just go and live the life you've made for yourself. Rory tries to hand the man a big wad of cash, packet full of money. And he says, Listen, this, is, this is yours. I, I'm, I'm going to take my name off the book. I'm going to tell everybody the truth. And the old guy says, if you do that, you're a bigger fool than I thought. The old man says, this story, talking about the book, is my life. It's about my wife and my child. It's about the joy and the pain that gave birth to those words. If you're going to take those words, you got to take that pain. Why don't you buy a plant with your money? The old man shoves a plant into Roy's hands and says, take your plant, take your money, get out of here, and pushes him away. And Roy says, hey, I want to make things right. And the old guy says, you can't make things right. Some things are just things. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't fix this. And Roy's like, but I want to try. He says, you can't. And he walks away and turns his back on him without offering any relief from the debt of sin that Rory owes. That's heavy. So is what Jesus says in our text today. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Open your Bibles to Matthew 6, verse 12. We're going to talk about being in debt today, the debt of sin. In many ways, America is a nation weighed down by its citizens, and more importantly, its government's debt. National consumer debt has reached an all-time high of over $16 trillion. Credit card debt accounts for, I'm going to use this word strategically, only about $900 billion of that figure. Most of it, $11.5 trillion, is mortgage debt. And given the current news cycle, it's also worth noting that $1.75 trillion is student loan debt. What that means is, y'all, student loan debts are twice what credit card debt is in this country. I'll talk more about that in a little while. The Bible teaches us that all of us owe a debt to God. 
Our sin places us under obligation to God. And in the model prayer, often called, the, Jason used the term last week, the disciples' prayer. Usually it gets, it's known as the Lord's Prayer, right? In this model prayer, Jesus teaches us to ask for God's forgiveness of our debts. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Jesus teaches us, he says, and, now he's connecting this to the prayer of God's providence that we looked at last week, you know, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We're going to talk about what that means today. Thank you so much for being here. For you here in the room, I'm grateful that you're here. Of those watching online, thanks for logging in. It takes a little extra effort to do church online. So I want to encourage you to be active in the chat. You know, fill out your online connection card, y'all, if you want to do your paper one. That really helps us out a lot, too. You may have noticed if you've seen our uh, aprariums right up front. Um, each week as we, we process the prayer requests that come in on your card, and we still want those on your your, uh, your prayer sheet there, or your connection card, we're putting them in here. So they're kind of just adding up, right? They're, they're, they're stacking up. We're seeing a visual representation of that. Today we're, we're continuing our series on the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, all right? And today I want to talk to you about the, the part of our prayers where we ask God for forgiveness. Don't raise your hands. How many of you have ever asked God for forgiveness in prayer, right? Like, Okay, yeah. And, I, and the reason I told you not to raise your hand is I didn't want someone to be embarrassed if they didn't put their hand up. You know, like, we all do this. I hope we all do this. But how, how? Jesus tells us to do this. Why should we do it? How should we do it? We're talking about that today. Here's the conclusion I've come to. It's our big idea this morning. You can stand before God when your debt is paid and, that, the word and there might be the most important word in this whole thing, and you have released others from theirs. It's both. And we're going to talk about how it's both today. I think this text lays out a two-part dynamic when we pray for forgiveness. There's a need and there's a response, right? We're going to take each in turn. Let's talk about the need. Here's the need. We're in debt. We're in debt up to our eyeballs with sin, All right? Now, as I begin to investigate this next element in the model prayer, I want to I want to focus on probably the two most significant meaty uh, words here, the word for forgive and the word for debt, all right? This may feel a little granular at first, but there's a reason for this, so hang with me. The word that Jesus used here, translated forgiveness, is the word aphemi. Now, for some of you, if you've been with us for more than a few months, that's going to sound familiar, because earlier this year, we did a whole sermon series called Released on that word. Right? It's, it's the same word. It, it's, it means to let go, to release. It's translated here, forgive. That's, that's its normal meaning. Uh, another way, a different nuance to the word would be just to kind of let it slide, right? To not count it against somebody. Now, the problem with defining it that way is that from that phrase, you might get the mistaken idea that God is just some, you know, big grandpa in the sky who kind of, you know, thinks kids are cute, and when they do something, oh, you just pats them on the head, oh, that's okay, honey, don't worry about that, and now you go on and do your thing. Nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to God's perception about sin, See, one thing I want to make very plain is that God is completely aware of our sin. Asking for his forgiveness is not asking him to ignore our wrongdoing, to pretend like it never happened. Asking God's forgiveness is asking him to let it go, to release it, to cancel it, to no longer hold it against us, which is why in the model prayer it's imaged as a debt. There are a lot of different words for sin in the Bible. In just a little bit, we're going to put, look at a parable that puts this in perspective. 
But you need to understand this, this word, it's translated sin. It's one of, the, one of the frequent words in the Bible for, or excuse me, it's translated debt by the NIV. It's a word for sin. It, it means, it's, it's a technical financial term. It means something owed, an obligation. It, it's, it's a legal term too for personal debt. It, and interestingly, it's one of the few words in the New Testament that focuses on the results of sin. A lot of the words in the New Testament talk about sin as a concept, right? To miss the mark, right? That there was this goal out there that you were supposed to do and you didn't do it, right? Um, or or to, one of the main images in the Bible for sin is to be in slavery, right? Which is, I sure hope, nothing that any of you have ever experienced personally. So it's, it's conceptual in nature. This is one of those words to be in debt. Like, I get that. I, I understand that. And I know that there are some of you in here who have no debt at all. You don't have credit cards, you paid off your mortgage or whatever. Praise the Lord for that. That is awesome. Most of you either are now or have been in debt in your life. It's almost a universal of of the American experience. This is this idea. That's why this word is translated debt and not sin by every major English translation except the New Living Translation. They actually use the word sin there. So if you're looking at an NLT, you're like, what are you talking about? It's the one major English translation that uses the word sin. Nearly all of them use the word debt because of the implications of this. So when Jesus talks about forgiveness of our debts, he's not talking about canceling your visa bill. This prayer reflects a Jewish concept that all of our lives are on loan from God. Everything we have is his right? You, you understand that the very breath in your lungs is God's. Remember the creation story? And God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. The very breath you're breathing right now is borrowed breath. It is given to you. He's your creator. And what that means is that every time we act in a way that violates the creator's principles for us on how to live, it puts us in debt before God because we violated the principles by which God created us to live. You're like, I don't like that. I get it. But this is in your universe. It's his. You might have a better way, but you don't have a universe. This is his universe. And in God's universe, God does things in God's way. <laughs> He's your creator. And if he says this is wrong, it's wrong, whether you like it or not. And when you do wrong, and Romans 3.23 says all of us have, it puts you in debt. You're in debt before a holy God because of your sin. See, one thing we have to remember is that the Lord's Prayer comes right smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the sermon, when Jesus talks about life in the kingdom, right? We have to remember when he tells parables, he says the kingdom of heaven is like, and almost inevitably when you look at parables, you can find some kind of correlation to something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount because he says this is all about life in the kingdom. And so what I want to do is to look at a parable that Jesus told that I think provides some insight into this. Look with me, it'll be up on the screen. At Matthew 18, starting in verse 23. This is right after, you know, Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times. He thinks he's being generous, right? Because the rabbi said you only have to do three, so he doubles it and adds one, <laughs> right? And, Peter, and Jesus says, no, not seven times, 77 times. And Peter's head explodes, 
What? And Jesus tells this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, I didn't do the math this week, but that's a lot, a lot, a lot of money, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had be sold, meaning sold into slavery, to repay the debt. By the way, quick historical note, in the ancient world, slavery, we tend to think of it in racial terms. It wasn't that, that way in the ancient world. It was much more financial. If you had a debt you couldn't pay, you, you became someone's slave until you could pay it off. You would never pay it off. You couldn't. That's the point, right? But that was the way that worked in the ancient world. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, this simple story says more, I think, about the nature of forgiveness than a thousand sermons ever could. There are images that mean things in this parable. Let's track back through them. There's a king, that's God, who wants to settle accounts with his servants. That's God's justice. Right? As he begins the settlement, that's like day of judgment language, a man with this huge debt, which is his sin, that's an obligation against God's perfection, is brought before the king. There's no way he can pay it off because we can't pay for our own sin. You can't earn your way into heaven. The Bible's really clear about that. You can't ever expunge this guilt on your own. Not going to happen. So he and his family are sold into slavery. Maybe that's an image for hell. The scholars argue about it. I'll let them do it. To repay the debt. They can't. And so the servant, that's you and me, begged the king for more time. Now the king knows that a billion millennia are not enough, right, to, to, to pay off the debt. And so that he just, in his magnanimous nature, cancels the debt. He forgives it. What, what's, that, what's that mean? It means he absorbs it. When the king cancels the debt, the king absorbs the cost of the debt. He takes it on himself. He pays for it. And then he lets him go. That's the freedom we have in being forgiven. The point of the parable is that you and I must realize and admit that our sin is a debt to God that we cannot repay. I, I, it, it doesn't matter how much blood you donate to Indiana Blood Centers. That's not earning you brownie points with God. It doesn't matter how much you give to the United Way. That's not earning you brownie points with God. It doesn't matter how many mission trips you go on. It doesn't matter if you sing in the choir. None of that matters. You're not earning your way into heaven. Not going to happen. The one you owe has to release you from the obligation to repay it, and the only way for him to do that is to take the debt upon himself. Then your debt is forgiven. And it is forgiven. I want, to, I want you to be that very, understand that very clearly. If you have asked God to take away your sin, if you have made a profession of faith in Jesus, been baptized, received the Holy Spirit, begun that walk of discipleship, if you have done that, your sins are forgiven. They're gone. They're done. 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will purify us from all unrighteousness. That is a promise given to those who are in Christ. And so this forces us to ask the question, if this prayer is for Christians, and it is, and Christians have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus shed for us on the cross, and we have been, why does he tell us to ask for forgiveness in prayer? Seems kind of weird, right? Now, you, some would say, well, he told him to pray this before he died on the cross. So there, there's a chron chronology issue there. Yeah, but he seems to institute this as something that should be, when you pray, do it like this, right? He, he's not saying, you know, for the next 18 months, and then I'm going to die, and it's cool, right? That's not, that's not what Jesus says. 
So, so I think this is a great question. If, if our sins have been forgiven, but we're still commanded to do this, why? <laughs> let's, let's talk about it. I don't claim to have this all figured out, right? I'm still kind of wrestling my way through this. Here's the conclusion I've come to. I believe that the extent to which we perceive or feel God's forgiveness is directly linked to our admission of our need for forgiveness. And, and, and you know, so Jesus asks us to regularly ask for it. He instructs us to ask for it regularly, knowing that we've received it from our Father in heaven, so that we're continually reminded of our need for his grace. The reason Jesus asks us to do this, even though our standing before God is one of forgiveness, is so that we're continually reminded of our need for it. It also, I think, helps restore our relationship with God, that, that sense of closeness. Listen, your sins were forgiven when you accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. You can't get... if hmm, I have all these words, and they all want to come out at the same time. If you are in Christ... And what that, by that I mean, you have acknowledged Jesus as Savior and Lord, you've asked him to take away your sins, you've been baptized, you've received the Holy Spirit to come live inside you, you're walking in discipleship to Jesus. If you are in Christ, you cannot get more saved than you are right now. Period. Full stop. On the day of your salvation, you got the full meal deal, man. If you haven't done that, do not walk out of this room. Do not log off until you do. In just a little while, we're going to stand and sing a song together. And if you've never made that decision, you're going to be invited to come forward and place your faith in Jesus and be baptized and receive God's Spirit to come into your life and take away your sin. You're going to have that opportunity in a little while. Do not walk out of here until you've done that. But if you're in Christ, you can't get more saved than you are right now. And yet we are commanded to pray this way because asking for God's forgiveness keeps us mindful of our need for it and restores intimacy with the Father when it is broken by our struggle with sin. So what do you mean? Give me an example. Um, this is an imperfect example at best, but I'm going to try, all right? I have three little boys. I got one big one and I got three little ones, right? My little boys are friends with the neighbor kids. Um, who come and knock on our patio window, because they want to jump on the trampoline, and they need, you know, like, come on out, guys. And then the other neighbor kid comes over. And then the other neighbor kid, and we got, like, our, on our court, there's this pack of boys, you know. And one day, they're all out there on their bikes. It's like I live with a biker gang. It's amazing. <laughs> but they're out there, and they're out there for hours in this heat, and they come in, and they just, little boys just stink. I mean, they just... It's bad. <laughs> Sean's nodding, right? Kylie's nodding. The two, two moms and little boys right down here in the front, they're like, uh-huh, can I get a witness, right? Like, they smell, and they're like, I want to hug. I don't really want to hug you right now. You stink. I love you. I will hug you, but I'm not enjoying this. But then there's bath time, and they're fresh out of the bath, and they smell like soap and shampoo, and they're clean, and they're in their PJs, and you're just like, oh, come here, you little girl. Now, this is an imperfect example, but do you think our Heavenly Father can't identify with that? I wonder sometimes if Jesus told us to pray, pray this prayer because, listen, even if you're in a right standing with God, habitual sin will impact that. It just will. And if you're here this morning and you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? 
It wasn't him. We have a need for forgiveness. That's part of it. But we also have this response. So what's the response? Well, this is these ideas of payment and release. The need is we're in debt. So how does God respond to that? Payment and release. Now, earlier we looked at the words for forgive and, and debt at the res- risk of being consumed by minute details. Let me, let's talk about the other words in Matthew 6, 12, right? First, the word translated as in verse 12, right? And, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those, you know, as we, as we have forgiven our debtors. It's a marker of relationship. It's not super strong in the original language, but it's there for a reason. I want you to hear me. Your forgiveness from God is inseparably related to your forgiveness for others. I'm going to say that again because I know some of you take notes. Your forgiveness from God is inseparably linked to your for, is inseparably linked to your forgiveness for others. Did you catch the pronouns? Us, our, we, our, the plural pronouns. This, this is relational language here. God is talking about our relationship with him and our relationships with each other. So this really then raises a couple questions. There are two questions that confront us. The first one is, is this an individual or a corporate prayer? And the answer is, yes. It's both. I, I really believe it is. It's, it really is both. Now, Jesus is speaking to a group of people, right? This is in, the, again, remember, the Sermon on the Mount, lots of folks. So it makes sense just logically that his grammar would reflect plural language, right? He's talking to a group of people, so he uses plural words. But he's giving us in a frame that each one of us can use. You, you, can you pray this prayer in rote? Can you pray the Lord's Prayer? Can you pray the model prayer as part of your devotions? Absolutely, yeah. You can, you can repeat this. Our Catholic friends do it all the time. You, you, you can and probably should pray, Father, forgive me my sins as I have forgiven. And I would encourage you to put names in there. Personalize it. As I have forgiven Joe and, and, and Mary and, you know, Phil and Susan or whatever, you know. You put names in there. You, you, uh, forgive me as I have forgiven these people. You can totally do that. But the way Jesus states it is our. It's a corporate prayer. And this is something, church, that I don't know that we've done well at over the years. In our hyper-individualized Western culture, we're not awesome at this. Praying corporate prayers of repentance. It, it, this is both. That's one issue, and, and I think it's important. Is this an individual prayer? Yes. Is it a corporate prayer? Yeah. But there's a second issue. The second question is this. Do I have to be forgiving to be forgiven? And again, the answer is a resounding Yes right? Do I have to be forgiving to be forgiven? Yes, you do. And and I know that because of the rest of this parable. Look with me again at Matthew 18, right? The servant is released from the king. He goes on his merry way. Verse verse 28, but when that servant, yeah, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. So remember the disparity between the debts, right? Thousand bags of gold, hundred silver coins, big difference. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Does that sound familiar? It ought to, word for word, same phrase, what he said to the king earlier. But he refused. 
Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Will he ever pay the debt? No, not possible. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, rightly, and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And Jesus adds this sentence here at the end. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So let me remind you of the parallels, right? In the parable, the king is God, the servant is you and me, the huge debt is our sin before a holy God, the canceled debt is forgiveness, being let go is our forgiveness or freedom in Christ. But now in the second part, we get some new images, right? The fellow servant, servant is another person. Now, it could be interpreted as another believer. That's legit. But you also need to remember the context of the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Someone asks for your cloak, give him your tunic. Right? It's this extra mile idea that's present, kind of weaves its way through the Sermon on the Mount. So is this just, uh, you know, applying to other believers? It's, it's a primary application, yeah, but I think it's, I really do believe it's broader than that. This could be people who are not Christians who sin against you. You know, the small debt is our sins against each other. The fellow servant begging is a friend who comes to you and and humbly asks for your forgiveness. The servant throwing his fellow servant into prison is this unwillingness to forgive. And so the king reinstates the debt. Please don't ask me to explain that theologically. I'm not 100% sure if God forgives us. Like, does that, does it mean on judgment day it kicks back in? I don't know. Jesus doesn't answer that in in the text. We will find out, won't we? And the idea is if you refuse to forgive others, God will not forgive you. And Jesus finishes this parable by saying if we don't forgive each other from the heart, God has no obligation to uh, treat us any different than he did the, the first parable in the servant. And you're like, Casey, that's really heavy stuff. I, I get it. Keep going. Read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Just, a, you know, what, 20, 30 verses later, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge or you too will be judged, right? And here's the principle behind that. For with, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. God will use the same standard you use with other people toward you. Yikes! Wow! Essentially, then, here's the question. Does God only forgive your, st- your sin to the extent that you forgive other people? To put a finer point on it, is your experience of God's forgiveness dependent on or limited by your forgiveness of others? I'm going to say that again because I want this question to be very clear in your mind. Is your experience of God's forgiveness of you dependent on or limited by your forgiveness of others? Yes. But, hear me, but, ignore the bird. (laughs) Hear me, listen to me. It is not a limitation of God. It is a limitation of you. It's not God imposing the limit, it's you. 
God is not the one imposing the limit and extending forgiveness. You are the one imposing the limit and receiving it. God is free. God can do what he wants. God is God. He's not li- There's nothing you can do that's going to limit God. But by not forgiving others, you are self-imposing a limit on your experience of God's forgiveness by not letting that go. In other words, your prayers for forgiveness will bounce off the ceiling. You won't feel close to God, not because God can't forgive you, but because you can't and won't receive it. And listen, I know, I get it. That's a hard teaching, especially for those of you who have been deeply and or repeatedly hurt by other people. In a group this size, and who knows how many are watching online, people come in here and they're like, preacher, you got no idea what has happened to me. You're right. Some of you, I know your stories, but not everybody. So if that's you, let me remind you of two things. First of all, forgiveness is not make-believe. Forgiveness is not make-believe. Forgiveness does not ask you to pretend like you were never hurt so that you just get hurt again all over again, right? You can simultaneously forgive, right? You let the offense go, you cancel it, you absorb it, you don't count it against somebody, you know, you don't let it drive you. You can do that and you can still have healthy boundaries. Those things are not in conflict. They do that. Let's say, what, what are you talking about? Let me give an example. Let's say, uh, and I'm going to use an example that would never, ever, 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 ever happen. Okay, I'm going to, because my, neighbor, my neighbors are good people. Let's just say my neighbor steals my grill. Right, we were grilling out last night. Let's say the neighbor comes over and steals my grill. Would never happen. The neighbor's a great guy. But let's just say he does that. And he's like, hey, I'm sorry, I took your grill. Uh, I knew someone who I think needed it more than you as I gave it to them. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, I forgive you. So I go buy another grill, right? Put it out in the backyard. Six months goes by. I go out to grill again one day. No grill. I'm like, where's my grill? And the neighbor's like, hey, I'm really sorry. Uh, I, there was someone else I knew, and, and they, I figured they could use it. You know, you're doing fine. They could use some help. I, I, I took it. Okay. I forgive you. I go buy another grill. And I lock it in the shed. <laughs> I'm forgiving him. I let it go. But I put that third grill in the shed. Right? Forgiveness is not make-believe. I'm not pretending like it never happened. I, I, no, okay, I get it. You know, let's, let's extend forgiveness and still have a healthy boundary. Secondly, this is a family prayer. And I think the parable makes that clear. He talks about forgiving your what? Brothers and sisters. It's a family prayer. Now, it, it, I don't think Jesus is instructing unbelievers to pray this prayer. He's talking about disciples. He's talking about people who have already made a commitment to follow him. If you're, if you're not a believer in Christ, praying this prayer will not change your standing before God. If, if you're not a believer in Jesus, being a forgiving person to other people will not change your standing before God. You should do that, right? I mean, that's just, a good, just being a good human, but just being a kind, forgiving person does not change your standing before God. You still need to appeal to Jesus for his grace because of your sin. But this, I believe, concerns the ongoing sins of God's children. Those things that we do either out of habit, 
addiction, whatever, <laughs> just because we weren't paying attention in life, that mar our closeness with the Father. So how do you, how do, you, how do, you do this? And, and, and also, I think, then, to extend that closeness that we feel with God to other people. How do we do this? The two words, right? Forgive, or payment and release. Payment and release. I, want, I, I need you to understand this idea. Every sin that every person has ever committed against you was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything that has ever been done to hurt you, Jesus died for. And I guess what I'm telling you, church, is if he is willing to let it go, who are you to hang on to it? You have no right. The payment has been made. And I know that's hard to hear. And if you've been hurt deeply and you've been hurt repeatedly, that's really hard to hear. Jesus is willing to forgive it. You've got no right to hang on to it. And I remember the day he spoke this to me. I was struggling with this. And God spoke five words to me that changed my whole understanding. It wasn't audible. I didn't hear an audible voice. He spoke it to my soul. But these five words have changed my life. Ready? Here they were. It wasn't Casey on that cross. Wow. Yes, Lord. If he's willing to let it go, he has paid the price. You got no right to hang on to it. That's one thing. Here's the second thing. So that's the payment. <laughs> Here's the release. Do you want to be free of this? You want to let it go? In prayer, you ask God to work in you to not allow those sins against you to have hold on you anymore. Say, how can you say that? Because he already let it go. He knows how to do it. And you're sitting there going, preacher, I don't know how to do that. I know. I don't, I'm not good at it either. But he does. Because he already has. And if you believe that he has, he can help you do what you don't know how to do. He can help you release that. Help you let that go. Did you hear me today? You can stand before God when your debt is paid and you have released others from theirs. I'm sure by now you've heard about President Biden's plan to forgive at least a portion of some people's student loans. There's been a lot of noise about this, for and against, in the church and outside of it. You, you, you can't talk about forgive us our debts in our current cultural climate and not reference this. Like, you just can't. If I would have preached this sermon six weeks ago, probably wouldn't use this illustration. But here we are. What do you do with this? Because I know for a fact that there are some here, some watching online, who, who are you know, vehemently opposed to the president's plan. They say it's deeply unjust. And I know for a fact that there are some here, both in the room and online, who will benefit personally from this. Their, their debt will be released. They will, it will go down. And they say it's profoundly compassionate. What do we do? I think a right response to this situation takes nuance, Nuance takes time, and we're out of it today. So I'm, I've, I've worked really hard to say what I'm going to say about this carefully and concisely. Here's what I want to say. I just want you to listen to this. Christian, 
your own salvation depends on you being released from the debt of your sin. You should not be opposed to people being released from debt for your own sake and because the Bible from beginning to end is very pro-release. But when God forgives, he takes the offense on himself. He bears it. He pays the penalty. Not another debtor. (laughs) That's what Jesus did on the cross. He took your debt on himself. When when we say nearly every week that he died on the cross in your place for your sin, he, he took that debt on himself. He paid it, not somebody else. He paid it with his own blood. Romans 3.26 says that God is both just and the one who justifies. I don't believe that the student loan forgiveness plan being proposed meets that standard. Even though I know, I recognize that it really helps some people. Right? Say, well, what would, Casey? What would meet that standard? The only thing I can come up with, and I'm, who am I to talk about this, but the only thing I can come up with is this. If the government wants to forgive the, the debt, fine. It needs to absorb it and not make an additional burden on taxpayers. And the only way to do that would be to cut spending. I'll not hold my breath. <laughs> that's, that's what would meet the biblical standard in my mind. I might be wrong about that, but this is where we are. I I posted something on Facebook this week if you want to dig into it. It's a great article by David French about that gets into some more of this stuff. And his point is that the framework of the moral framework of Scripture is both compassionate and just, and those things are not in conflict. But only an all-powerful God can pull them off perfectly 100% of the time. Which is why I think Jesus teaches us to ask for forgiveness. Our recent mess with this whole student loan thing is a perfect example of how imperfect and flawed we are when it comes to forgiveness. We need his help to do this. And so he teaches us to ask for it. The only reason you will ever be able to stand before God is because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. He took the debt of sin that you owed and he released you from it because he took it on himself and paid for it with his own blood. And so when you pray, you need to acknowledge that amazing gift every single time you exercise your right to speak to the king of the universe. But do not dare come into his presence if you aren't also willing to be that free and forgiving with others. Imperfect though that forgiveness may be. So what are you going to do with this? Well, if you're here today and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, you're in debt. You're in debt up to your eyeballs in sin. But Jesus offers you a way out. He offers you freedom from it. He offers you release. He's already paid for it for you. You just have to say yes. And so in just a second, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. If you've never done it, to come forward, to acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord, be baptized. Everything's ready. The water's warm. Towels are dry. We're ready. If you've never done that, you can do that today. Maybe you're struggling with trying to forgive somebody, and it's hard, and want, want someone to come alongside you and partner with you in prayer. We'd love to do that. Fred will be down front. I'll be down front. We've got others who will just come out of the woodwork to pray with you and for you. And if that's where you're at today and you want someone to come alongside you in prayer, we'd love to labor with you and do that. 
Maybe there's another need you have. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together, and you respond as God leads you.